In the fuselage of his bomber, a glowing light switched from red to green. As it did, a man grasped the sides of the plane's open hatch and flung himself into the night. As he drifted silently home to French soil, young medical student Alain Perposat could feel at his waist the tug of a money belt containing five million francs. But it was not to deliver that impressive sum that he had plummeted into this dark August night. Fitted into the sole of Alain Pepezal's left shoe was a gossamer-thin strip of silk. It contained eighteen blocks of coded figures. So important and so urgent did his superiors in London consider the message stamped on it that, against all their rules, they had sent Alain Pepezal plunging into this moonless night to deliver it. Perpizat did not know what was in the message he carried. All he knew was that he was to deliver it as quickly as possible to the head of the British Intelligence Service in France, whose code name was Jade Amicole. His headquarters were in Paris. It was seven o'clock the next morning when Perpizat shook off the last slivers of hay from the haystack in which he'd hidden for the night. To get to Paris, the young medical student chose the quickest means open to him, he decided to hitchhike. The first truck that rolled past him on France's Route 3 stopped. It belonged to the Luftwaffe. Four helmeted German soldiers hanging to the wooden slats of its open van stared down at him. Papazar watched the door of the truck open. The driver beckoned to him. It seemed to Papazar at that instant that his bulky money belt weighed a hundred pounds. The German studied him. Nach Paris, he said. Papazan nodded and numbly slid into the warm seat beside him. Then the German shifted gears, and from the cab of the Luftwaffe truck, the young agent with his message for the head of British intelligence for France, watched the road to Paris begin to slide past. Kneeling in the cool shadows of their chapel, the nine sisters of the Order of the Passion of Our Blessed Lord were reciting their third rosary of the day, when the three long and one short rings jabbed through the stillness of their convent. Immediately two of them got up, blessed themselves, and left. To Sister Jean, the mother superior, and Sister Jean-Marie Vianney, her assistant, three long and one short rings of the old doorbell of their convent at 127 Rue de la Santé meant an important visit. For four years, the Gestapo had searched desperately for a man this convent concealed. There, behind the sitting-room of this scabrous old building, built at the juncture of a vacant lot, and the high stone walls of the insane asylum of Sainte-Anne, was the headquarters of Jade Amicole, the head of British intelligence for occupied France. Protected by these old stones and the tranquil courage of a handful of nuns, his headquarters had survived all the Gestapo's relentless hunts. In 1943, the convent was even the site of a secret meeting between Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, head of the Abwehr, Germany's military intelligence, who was taken there blindfolded, and the chief of the intelligence service in France. Canaris wanted to find out from Churchill what might be the terms of an eventual peace treaty between the Allies and Germany free of Hitler. Fifteen days later, the answer came back from Churchill. It was unconditional surrender. 
Eighteen months later, Canaris was executed for his role in the plot against Hitler. Sister Jean opened the Judas window, cut into the convent's heavy oak door, and saw outside the face of a young man. My name is Alain, he said. I have a message for the colonel. Sister Jean unbolted the door and stepped out onto the doorstep herself to make sure the young man was alone and that he had not been followed. Then she beckoned him inside. In the sitting room, under an austere portrait of the unknown Lazarite priest who had founded the Order of the Passion of Our Blessed Lord, Alain Pepezard took off his left shoe. With a knife Sister Jean handed him, Pepezard pried apart its sole and slipped out the scrap of silk for which he had just risked his life. He handed it to the balding giant with blue eyes sitting in the armchair next to him. Colonel Claude Olivier, Jade Amicole, glanced at the black letters stamped on it and asked Sister Jean to bring him the grid with which he decoded his messages. It was printed on a razor-thin handkerchief made of a digestible fabric that would dissolve on his tongue in seconds if he had to swallow it. Sister Jean kept it hidden in the chapel, below the altar stone under the tabernacle of the altar of the good thief. Olivier fitted the grid to the message Pepezard had brought him. The Allied command, it said, was determined to bypass Paris and to delay its liberation as long as possible. Nothing, it added, could be allowed to change those plans. It was signed General, the code name for the head of the intelligence service, a signature reserved for messages of extreme importance. The colonel looked up at Pepezard. My God, he said, this is a catastrophe. Chapter 2 For the city, spread beyond the walls of Jade Amicole's convent, this warm August morning marked the 1,503rd day of its German occupation. Exactly on the stroke of twelve, just as he had done every day during those four years, Private Fritz Gottschalk and the 249 other men of his first Sikorungsregiment began their daily march down the Champs-Élysées to the Place de la Concorde. Ahead of them, a brass band broke into the strident notes of Poisson's glory. Prussia's glory. Few Parisians stood on the sidewalks of that majestic avenue to watch Private Gottschalk's display. They'd learned long before to avoid that humiliating sight. That strutting parade was just one of the many humiliations the capital of France had had to learn to bear since June the 15th, 1940. The only place a Frenchman could see his country's flag on public display in Paris that day was the musty army museum of Les Invalides, where it was locked inside a glass cabinet. The black, white and red swastika of Nazi Germany defiled the city from the top of the monument that was its very hallmark, the Eiffel Tower. From hundreds of hotels, public buildings and apartment houses requisitioned by Paris's conquerors, the same oppressive banner fluttered, a symbol of the regime that had for four years shackled the spirit of the world's most beautiful city. Along the graceful arcades of the Rue de Rivoli, around the Place de la Concorde, in front of the Palais du Luxembourg, the Chamber of Deputies and the Quai d'Orsay, 
black, white and red Wehrmacht sentry boxes barred Parisians from the pavements of their own city. Before 74 Avenue Foch and 9 Rue des Sarcelles, before other buildings less clearly marked but no less well known, other men stood guard. They wore the twin silver flashes of the SS on their tunic collars. They guarded the offices of the Gestapo. Their neighbours did not always sleep well. Sometimes it was not easy to blot out the screams that floated almost nightly from those buildings. The Germans had even changed the face of the city. Almost two hundred of its handsomest bronze statues had been torn down. They were shipped to Germany to be melted into shell casings. The architects of the TODT labour organisation had replaced them with monuments of their own, less aesthetic perhaps, but more efficacious. Sunk into the pavements of Paris were almost a hundred concrete pillboxes, their squat forms pimpled the surface of the city like a rash of warts. And a tangle of white wooden signs had sprouted like beanstalks in the Place de l'Opéra before the wicker chairs of the Café de la Paix. Their black-lettered arms pointed German drivers to such ungallic destinations as Der Militaire Befels Harbour in Frankreich, General der Luftwaffe, and Hauptwerkersdirektion Paris. That summer, a new one had been added. Its wording cheered the Parisians who passed it. It read, Zur Normandie Front. Never had the city's wide boulevards been so empty. There were no buses. Taxis had disappeared in 1940. The few drivers fortunate enough, or compromised enough, to have a German Ausweiss for their cars used wood for fuel. Those converted cars were called...